Welcome back to Until It's Fixed, where we take an inside look at pressing topics in the healthcare industry, new approaches to care, and how to make the health system work better for all of us. I'm Callie Chamberlain. Stacy is out today. Throughout this podcast season, we've been touching on a few recurring themes. One of those is meeting people where they are, which is the idea that there's no one size fits all to something as complex as health. And if we want to set people up for success, we need to start by honoring each individual's needs and specific situations. And of course, to help them take charge of their health in a way that feels meaningful for them. This needs to go beyond medical advice and also be inclusive of the systems that we're operating within. So today, we're going to be using that same lens to look at tobacco use and quitting tobacco. That's going to be referred to as tobacco cessation throughout this episode. And when we talk about that, what we're talking about are everything from smoking cigarettes to e-cigarettes, vaping, and chewing tobacco. It is really interesting in this conversation for me to reflect on one of my first jobs as a hostess at a restaurant by my house where I was in my teens and, you know, asking everybody that came into the restaurant if they wanted to sit in a smoking or non-smoking section. And I can remember when that shift happened and the legislation got passed where we didn't do that anymore. And I had forgotten all about that because I cannot remember the last time I walked into an establishment and was asked that question. And yet, as we'll talk about today in this episode, according to the CDC, tobacco is still the number one cause of preventable death in the United States. And smoking accounts for about one in five American deaths every year. In addition to that, it leaves more than 16 million Americans to live with smoking-related disease. This is one of the reasons why the third Thursdays in November, November 18th this year, is the Great American Smokeout. It's an event started in the 1970s and now sponsored by the American Cancer Society to encourage smokers to quit. Today, we'll dig into the approach to tobacco cessation and how that has changed over time, and in particular, how behavior change can be powerful in our efforts to quit. I had the chance to sit down with two people who have dedicated their careers to tobacco cessation and behavior change research, Etta Short and Dr. Kelly Carpenter. Dr. Kelly Carpenter and Etta Short, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited for this conversation. As we kick off, can you both share with our listeners a little bit about your own stories and backgrounds? Dr. Carpenter, do you want to go first? Sure. I am a clinical psychologist trained in general in addictions treatment, and I've spent my career developing and testing behavioral interventions, specifically digitally delivered interventions. And I've been working for about 10 years in the field of tobacco cessation here at Optum. I'm a principal scientist at the Optum Center for Wellbeing Research. I write grants and conduct studies, both my own studies and in partnership with academic researchers. Awesome. Edda, what about you? So I have a MS in public health education. I've been in the field for, let's say, way over 30 years. My expertise is behavior change, specifically specializing in tobacco cessation and other lifestyle on behaviors. And I've worked in many settings. I've worked in nonprofits and government and the university. But since 2005, I've been part of Optum's Quit for Life team. I was tapped by the World Health Organization to develop trainings on strengthening tobacco cessation in primary care settings and how to train quitline counselors. And I had the opportunity to train counselors and managers and trainers in China and Turkey and Sri Lanka. Wow. Thank you both so much for being here. Can you talk a little bit about what drove your particular interest or passion in this field? 
So tobacco is a special interest of mine because my father died of lung cancer in his 50s. Mm. He was a World War II veteran, and at the time he was in the military, we were handing out cigarettes to all of our military personnel, and they actually didn't stop that practice until 1975. Even today, veterans and military personnel are still targeted by tobacco companies, but that definitely drives my passion for this work. Wow. I did not know that. Thank you for sharing that with us. My passion for working in the field is personal as well. I started smoking the first day of high school, and I know that's a cliche, but it's true. And then I met the man I'm still married to in college, and when we started dating, he kind of gave me an ultimatum. He said it was either him or the cigarettes, and I chose wisely. But it really was hard to quit. It took me just many attempts. And in fact, during one quit attempt, a friend said to me as I was bumming a cigarette from her, you didn't stop smoking, you stopped buying. But anyway, from that experience, when I was in grad school, I selected um, the process of tobacco cessation as my thesis topic. And this was really early on before there was any real literature on smoking cessation. So I've been, you know, working on tobacco cessation pretty much um, for most of my career. And so you can imagine I am quite passionate about the topic. Wow. I think both of you touched on this in your answer, but we're talking a little bit about the trends and the cultural acceptance or pressures that exist around smoking. So I'm wondering what tobacco use was like historically and at its peak in America and how that might be different today. Tobacco use was very different in the past. So in 1965, just over half of U.S. adults smoked cigarettes. In 1964, The first Surgeon General's report came out on smoking and health, and it really changed the people's attitudes and behaviors about smoking. So let's fast forward, looking at 2011, actually one in five U.S. adults smoked. And now when we look at today, while tobacco is still the leading cause of preventable death in the U.S., only 14% of U.S. adults smoke. But that really doesn't tell the whole story, because when you look at who's smoking in in America, it's really people who are in vulnerable populations. It really makes tobacco a social justice issue. Populations with high tobacco use include Native Americans and Alaska Natives, people with lower incomes and less education, LGBTQ are more likely to be smoking, people on Medicaid, people with disabilities, veterans, and people with behavioral health conditions. One example is African-Americans who have been targeted by tobacco companies since the company's early days, in particular promoting menthol-flavored cigarettes to African-Americans, which are kind of easier to start smoking and harder to quit. And even though African-Americans smoke at about the same rate as white Americans, they have higher rates of tobacco-related disease and death due to the systemic disparities in our healthcare system. Pregnant women might be relatively few in number, pregnant women who smoke, but there is more at stake for them with the health consequences to the fetus. And pregnant women who smoke are often from lower income groups and may have other factors like low health literacy or a mental health condition. And there are far higher rates of smoking among those with behavioral health conditions, 40 or even 50% rates of smoking for some groups. I've seen estimations that people with behavioral health conditions might lose 20 years of their lives because of smoking. 
There's also discrepancies by geography, rural areas, and some parts of the South and the Midwest have far higher rates of smoking. And I definitely agree with Etta that tobacco use is a social justice issue. Yeah, I mean, especially the points that are being made about, you know, who it disproportionately impacts. And I feel like what you're touching on is a little bit of the social determinants of health as well. So can you talk about any trends and how tobacco relates to the social determinants of health? So for those not familiar with the term social determinants of health, it refers to those non-medical factors that influence health. So it's the environmental factors in which the individual is born and where they live, where they work, where they play, and, and those kind of things. So those involved with health behavior change really need to be aware of these environmental factors. They're the barriers that may be beyond the individual's control, such as access to housing or healthy fresh food or transportation or good schools or comprehensive health services for that matter. Or perhaps they're living in an unsafe neighborhood where they can't go outside for physical activity. And not to mention that there's that stress that comes from living in these conditions or living in an unsafe neighborhood or having all of these these issues. So it kind of goes back to really basic human needs. When people are concerned about their safety or the safety of their families, quitting might be a priority for them, but they're less likely to have the capacity to change, less likely to have the capacity to focus on tobacco cessation or any other lifestyle behavior for that matter. And social determinants of health are particularly relevant when we're talking about tobacco because as I said, most smokers are from underserved, vulnerable populations. And vulnerable populations, you know, they're targeted with advertisements on their advertisements in print or point of sale, or they're given special discounts, or the story that Kelly told about her yeah. dad in the military getting free tobacco, that was a common practice. And it kind of brings to light that the environment really does normalize cigarettes for people who live in areas where cigarettes are being promoted. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm also wondering about how e-cigarettes play into this. Yes, e-cigarettes have changed the landscape for tobacco use in general. And it's a complex story. And there's two parts to it. One part is how it impacts youth. And the other part is how it impacts adults. We can look back in 1977, when just over two-thirds of high school students were smoking cigarettes. And then fast forward again to 2015, only 19% of high schoolers were smoking. However, when e-cigs came on the market, there became a big change in the whole landscape. Kids started using e-cigs, and e-cig use had jumped from 12% in 2017 to 28% in 2019. So that was just in two years, and that's wow. a pretty big jump. Yeah. So actually, team vaping has dropped in 2020. It's actually at about 20% now, and that's due to several factors. One, the regulations change. You have to be 21 or over to buy e-cigs now. There's marketing has changed. COVID made a big impact. Vaping is a social kind of thing for kids, and you know, kids are out of school and not seeing each other, but now that they're back in school again, we're going to take a look and see if rates start rising again. But in addition to nicotine's impact on their developing brain, 
and other issues, or might lead to taking part in other risky behaviors. Now, the adult story is completely different. And Kelly, you might want to share share some stuff on that. Yeah, the other side of the e-cig story is adult use. About 4% of adults in the U.S. vape. And most of those are dual users, so they vape and smoke, or former smokers. And so these issues are really different when it comes to adults. The discussion centers around e-cigarettes as a cessation aid to help people switch from smoking cigarettes to the less harmful e-cigarettes as a strategy for harm reduction. And Kelly, the Optum Center for Wellbeing Research has run studies on tailored intervention for populations with health disparities, such as people of color or smokers with psychiatric conditions. Can you talk to us a little bit about that research? Sure. So the Center for Wellbeing Research has been conducting research for 30 years, and this includes studies looking at tailoring our coaching program for a variety of groups, including low income, those with behavioral health conditions, those at high risk for lung cancer, including who are older, heavier smokers. And one example is our Project Free study, which was a four-year study funded by the American Cancer Society, conducted in the North Carolina state-funded quitline. And we looked at the helpfulness of a video-based intervention that was specifically developed to help African-Americans quit smoking. The video had sections on the history of African-Americans in the tobacco industry, menthol flavoring, and other kind of culturally relevant topics. And in our study, we recruited more than 1,000 African-American smokers, and we kind of randomized to get our regular quitline program or the regular program plus the culturally tailored video. And we found that those who were randomized to the video tailored for African-Americans were more likely to quit smoking. And we're now able to offer this video program via the internet to anyone who joins any of our programs. There's a, another study with Dr. Rick Brown at the University of Texas, Austin, and we looked at helping those who had been hospitalized for serious psychiatric conditions. We wanted to help them stay quit after they were discharged from the hospital. So we tried kind of a multifaceted program that included motivational counseling while they were in the hospital, handing them nicotine patches as they left the hospital, and connecting them to the quit line, including their choice of phone, web, or text messaging. And we kept in contact with them for several months via text and automated phone calls to be sure they had the support they needed. And this approach doubled the number of people who stayed quit after being discharged from the hospital. These seem like very innovative and human-centered approaches to cessation. What was the traditional approach, maybe before we got to these more innovative places to think differently about tobacco cessation? What was the common thing that people would prescribe or recommend if someone was trying to quit smoking? I think back before that first study that Etta was involved in that showed that telephone counseling was effective, people just had the option of going to in-person. But then since the 90s, telephone became the primary way of delivering. Yeah, it's interesting because you know telephonic interventions were revolutionary, mm-hmm. and it was a way that we were able to you know do an effective intervention that reached a lot of people. And now I think the biggest thing that we're seeing in terms of how we can support people is the modality, like using digital tools Mm -hmm. to be able to help them. We didn't have tools like the web or texting back in the 80s when telephonic interventions emerged. And we also know that, you know, a lot of people don't even want to talk on the phone, so telephone is not the preferred method. We also know that 
these methods have been studied. And so we know we're sticking with the evidence and also meeting people where they're at. And so one, a couple of things that I'm kind of excited about of where we're moving to and now, actually we're moving, the future is now, is being able to do group interventions online. Now that we have the technology to bring people together in groups where you can have a coach facilitated group where there could be some problem solving and motivation building among people who are going through the same experience. Amazing. It's so incredible to hear about all of these different interventions. And that was my next question for you all is what makes a successful intervention, especially when we think about how many people are wanting to quit, trying to quit and how challenging that might be. I know we've touched a little bit on the research and interventions that you all are seeing. What else should we be thinking about? What else are you seeing is successful? So Callie, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. <laughs> so glad that you asked. So, you know, according to the clinical guidelines for treating tobacco use and dependence, effective interventions include behavioral counseling and the FDA approved medications, which include like nicotine patch or nicotine gum or prescription meds like varenicline. And effective counseling includes behavior change strategies, action planning, skill building, and practical problem solving. Also, when you look at effective change processes, you need to have a theory, a foundation, to be able to look at how you can explain change and predict change and define, describe and build interventions. Our theoretical model is social cognitive theory. And that theory says that behavior and change is influenced by people's behaviors, their environment, the personal factors, which includes thoughts and emotions and their biology, and that's relevant for tobacco because of addiction and all the diseases that, chronic diseases and communicable diseases that tobacco is a risk factor for. So in addition to, you know, to those factors, another important factor is what we call self-efficacy. And self-efficacy includes motivation and confidence. So an effective intervention helps people gain insights into their values and their motivations and help them realize that using tobacco is not aligned with what's most important to them. We also want people to get insight into how, you know, the things in their environment and their behaviors and their personal factors can get in the way of change or what are the things, are those factors that will help promote change, will help them make those changes. We also think about what can help them build that self-efficacy, what can help them build their motivation and confidence. And what that means is helping people to, you know, take small steps to build the right skills for change. And some of the skills that we look at to help people change is, first of all, setting a quit date, which is committing to the quit, mm. learning how to cope with urges, managing the withdrawal symptoms, and using FDA-approved meds is a way to do that getting the right support from family and friends, and creating a tobacco-free environment. How has technology helped or changed the field? Technology has really transformed our lives for better and for worse, but it's only effective if the intervention that's delivered via technology is evidence-based or based on the model similar to what Etta just described. So there are a lot of apps and online programs out there that are not based in the evidence. 
However, the benefit of technology is the ability to reach more people, more younger people, different age groups, more men who are less likely to want to talk on the phone and deliver interventions to where they are. They can also be tailored more easily, such as the video content for African-Americans I talked about. We have online content that kind of mirrors our coaching and provides a step-by-step -step tailored journey with video and interactive content. And we have a new vaping cessation program for teens, so it uses text messaging paired with short videos, animations, and other interactive content. I love this approach to tailoring messaging to specific audiences like teens. So before we continue with the interview, let's listen to a few of the videos Kelly mentioned. Everybody knows someone who vapes. We call it puffing, you actually, do but it, yeah, I've bad. done it. I see kids at my and school vaping all the time. Yeah, I actually have one in my pocket with me right now. I saw this one kid do it in class. Um, I heard that there's like bad and weird chemicals. I heard that they put food flavoring in it. Or formaldehyde. Like, isn't that the, the chemical that they put in bodies before they bury them? I keep trying to hide from my parents. If my parents knew I was vaping, I don't know what I'd do. I kind of want to ask them for help, but I mean, they're my parents. I'll be in really, really big trouble, but it sucks because I could really use their help. The end of our conversation talked about the idea of whole person health, both in how quitting smoking can impact your overall health, and even before that, how a person's circumstances and other aspects of their health have an influence on their ability to quit tobacco. And when we talk about the whole person approach, which so much of this is also touching on, what do we really mean by that? You know, there are several dimensions to this whole person approach. You know, the goal of quitting smoking is to help people have a better quality of life or live longer. So tobacco is a risk factor for many chronic diseases, including heart diseases and um, hypertension and COPD. Um, we've also learned that tobacco is a risk factor for communicable diseases. Mm -hmm. We've seen that people who smoke had a higher risk for severe illness or death with COVID. And so, you know, first of all, quitting tobacco helps people prevent these diseases and, and having a better quality of life. The other thing it does is help manage diseases once people already have them. So it can help lower blood pressure or help manage blood glucose. It can also help people who already have a disease to be able to have a better quality of life overall. Or like one example is it can stop the progression of COPD if you quit smoking. So that's one aspect of the whole person point of view. The other part of it is also changing lifestyles all around. So looking at, you know, people want to live better, healthier lives and not only putting smoking, you know, helps move them towards in that direction, but managing their stress and eating better and getting more physical activity helps them overall, you know, reduce their risk for the diseases um, related to tobacco, but also, you know, in general helps them live a healthier life. Mm -hmm. So not only does it a big overall picture, but, you know, stress management is important because stress is a trigger for smoking and stress is also the most common reason for relapse. Eating well is important because weight gain is one of the more common reasons for relapse. And like increasing physical activity can help to reduce stress and also help you manage your cravings. So when you're looking at the whole person, you're kind of making changes in a lot of different areas and also helping them quit tobacco at the same time. 
But there's another important reason for taking a whole person approach, and that's related to what we talked about earlier with social determinants of health. And we talked about, you know, people's environments can be a barrier to quitting. And so it's important, you know, to consider these factors when you're helping people change, knowing what they're going through and helping them reduce the barriers as you can. We also think about a whole person and that when you talk about helping someone quit, you're not talking about a person as a smoker. You're talking about a person who uses tobacco. And what we want to do is like reach back to the, what I talked about in social cognitive theory is that, well, let's think about the person's environment and their thoughts and their emotions and their behaviors and their biology. So they're a whole person, not just someone who is a smoker who wants to quit. I know that we had talked a little bit about COVID. Can you tell me how the trends in tobacco use may have changed as a result of the pandemic? COVID, I think, is something that has impacted many dimensions of our life in the last several years. I think that we've all experienced a lot of changes and COVID increased people's stress. It changed the way where people work or if they're working and how they're working. And it also did affect tobacco use. So tobacco and stress kind of go hand in hand. And what we've seen over um, the last many months um, since um, the start of COVID is an increase in tobacco use and tobacco sales as one way to, to show that. And we've also seen a decrease in the people who are calling the quit lines. So mm-hmm. it's a, a little bit of a barrier to quitting as well. It's one of those pieces of, if you think about social determinants of health, that's kind of factored in there. Thank you both so much for being here today. I learned so much about this topic. And my final question is, what is giving you hope right now? I mean, people are talking about the end game for smoking, right? It could be in our lifetime that it really just fades away. And what's given me some hope right now is the focus on health equity. And I think that's always been important as we worked in the health world and the behavior change world. But there's been a focus on it now that's elevated it and it's top of mind for people. And that has given me a lot of hope that we can move forward and help more people and make make some significant changes. One of the things that's really sitting with me after this conversation is the relationship between tobacco use and social justice. That is a lens that I had really not applied more critically to this topic. So the fact that smoking has overall across the United States decreased, but not within some of our most vulnerable populations, feels so heavy to me. When I think about the other challenges that these populations face and the disparities that exist within their health, their ability to access care, their ability to navigate the system, and then tobacco use and the impacts of that on their health. It's shocking to me and it just makes me sad transparently. So I'm really hoping that in having this conversation, you and I can start to think about how we address that. One of the things that I really appreciated about this conversation as well was looking at the importance of behavior change and the benefits that extend beyond just quitting tobacco use and influence all of these other things we've talked about, people's health status, their ability to be well and thrive. All of those things are so important. The quitline services that Etta and Kelly talked about today are available for free to any resident of the United States. 
You can call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. And in many states, this also includes access to free medication and some of the text messaging and web programs that they talked about. So we'll also put this resource in the show notes that is available to you. Thank you again for joining us today. Join us next time as we learn about cancer screening and how new partnerships are making disease prevention possible. Thank you for listening. I'm Kelly Chamberlain, and this is Until It's Fixed, a healthcare innovation podcast from Optum.